Hi, and welcome to the Changes Ahead podcast. Giving space to the often unheard questions, doubts, hopes, and challenges facing the church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Stephen. And I'm Kathy, and we invite you to join us as we imagine the changes ahead. This for me was a really confronting conversation that we had with Lindy as we listened to her story and as she talks about her experience in a much more controlling and restrictive religious environment, she describes a whole lot of practices that seem quite extreme at first, but then as I thought about it, as I was listening back to the conversation, there's actually things that I see quite similarly in many church spaces. And I think that if we listen with those ears to what Lindy is saying, that will raise questions for us and, and that will make us uh, much more aware of how we can also find ourselves doing a similar kind of thing. Yeah, and you know what really struck me, Stephen, was the strength of her integrity and that it was actually stronger than the terror that she knew she was going to experience when she left everything. And I think, to be really honest, it left me in a bit of a state of awe because I can't comprehend that kind of courage. And I think, you know, as we were listening to, we really didn't say a lot. And I felt that as we were hearing her story and being present, that that was the best way that we could honor her experience. So let's listen in. Lindy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, we've known each other for a, a good few years now, and we, we met back when we were both training at Kerry College, and I remember as I got to know you, hearing a bit about your story and, and the, the way that you have come out of quite a controlling religious space and into a, a more free religious space with, with your faith, and that's been quite a journey for you, and so we're, we're grateful to be able to hear some of that story. And something that's really exciting for you just more recently is that you've just started a network that supports people coming out of those spaces called Olive Leaf. So it'd be great to hear a bit about your story and then maybe you could tell us a little about the, the Olive Leaf Network. Yeah, so um, I grew up in, in a religious minority group that's found in New Zealand as well as overseas called the Exclusive Brethren. Um, they rebranded a few years ago as the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. So yeah, I was born and raised in, in this group in Auckland, New Zealand, and like it is with anybody anywhere, when you grow up in a certain group, that's all you know, and um, mm. when your mum and dad and everyone around you is in that environment, that's all you know. So um, yeah, it wasn't for many years until I began to become aware that we lived quite differently to people around us, and yeah. When you're growing up in an environment like that, like you've just said, and you just take it for granted that this is normal. You don't think that there's anything different about you. What was it that began to shift for you? What what began to happen that you started to maybe think there's something not quite right? Yeah, good question. And it is one that I do get asked often is how, you know, I'm I'm the third of six children and I do have a brother who's left now many years after I did. But yeah, people would say, how come you left and, and none of the others did and all that type of thing. And I, I think there is no one clear answer, you know, at a simplistic and Christian level, I could say things like God called me out because there is an element of truth to that but I think there's also a whole pile of other yeah psychological and practical 
reasons that play into that, like, you know, your family environment and and how close-knit that was, um, your own particular personality and whether you're wired to perhaps be a bit more of an independent thinker than others. Mm. For me, I have always enjoyed reading and writing and that definitely contributed to my ability to leave because for me, a key part of the process was reading scripture for myself. And if, for example, I found reading to be difficult, that probably wouldn't have happened. But I enjoyed reading. And in my mid-teens, I had what I've now come to call sort of a born-again experience. The Brethren didn't use that type of terminology, but um, I had a close friend suddenly die, um, drop dead, mm. and that made me start asking the big questions like, what, what is life? What is death? Um, is this all we know? Is God even real? Mm. Um, and yeah, they're probably questions that most teenagers or people start asking at some point or the other in their life. But for me, it was um, my friend's death that kicked that off and I was 16 and I began really asking all those questions and trying to understand the world around me and the particular religious beliefs and doctrines that I was being asked to live by. So yeah, we we knew we lived differently. Like growing up, I was one of the last brethren children to go to a secular primary school. Since then, they've developed their own private schools for their own children to go to. But yeah, because I had that experience, I knew that I was different. We were the only little kids who wore like a headscarf type thing and we got taken home at lunchtime because we weren't allowed to eat with other children. We weren't allowed to socialise with them and all that kind of thing. So from the get-go, it was you know clear to us that yeah we lived differently and that we were told, yeah, we believed it was because we were a very favoured position in God's economy kind of mm. thing, they called it, um, that yeah, we had a special light that nobody else had. Um, yeah, growing up, um, that was what life was like. And yeah, when I was about 16, I began to ask deeper questions to try and understand for myself why we lived like this. And yeah, that was that was the beginning of the end, really, because I started primarily with reading the Gospels. And very quickly, it became increasingly clear to me that actually how Jesus lived was very different to how we were living. You know, for us eating, for an example, core to all of the brethren's doctrine and practice is a very specific doctrine called separation from evil, which their founder, John Nelson Darby, wrote a big paper on, and he called separation from evil God's principle of unity. So he believed that the only way for a Christian fellowship to have God's blessing and, and unity among itself was to separate from evil but the brethren have got very particular interpretations and practices to that and they're heavily around having moral physical legal types of separation yeah so for the exclusive brethren it has become really centered around outward separation so for example they don't allow belonging to associations they don't allow participating in university study on site they don't allow divorced persons to remain together in fellowship and a key one is that they don't allow eating with outsiders. You're not allowed to eat or socialise with anyone who doesn't belong to them because they mm. only eat with people who have the Lord's Supper with them in their particular manner. So for me to read scripture and get to know Jesus and to see that he clearly ate with all sorts of people and clearly ate with sinners and that that very thing pissed off the Pharisees mm. was fascinating to me because he was someone who wasn't worried. He was totally holy and yet for him separating from evil didn't mean that he couldn't eat with outsiders and he couldn't heal outsiders and, and all that 
type of thing. And I, I fell in love with Jesus. I thought, if this person is the face of God, this is the kind of God that I could follow. This makes more sense to me. Yeah, mm. I you know read a, a very simple text like John 3.16, if God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, and to me, that shocked me because it said God loved the world. Well, we were taught to hate the world in no uncertain terms, to hate mm. it, to be separate from it in every possible way. We even called outsiders worldlies. You know, they're trying to get away from the use of that term now, and they refer to themselves as the community and outsiders as non-community. But yeah. really in practice, they all still do use and know what the term worldlies is. Mm. So, yeah, to, for me to read, God loved the worldlies. You know, it was it was <laughs> shocking to me. And I wow. thought, well, if that's who God's like, I quite like this God. Mm. Yeah, so I kept reading Scripture, and the more I read the more questions I got that couldn't be answered by the brethren. Because mm, I was going to ask that, you know, as these questions started to arise within you, how were they met? Well, you are not allowed to question or to doubt in the brethren that is seen itself as an act of disloyalty and um, it's threatening <laughs> and not encouraged at all. So it was a very, very private process, which I now find fascinating to reflect back on because often coming to know Jesus or even the process of disaffiliating from religion it's often a highly social process that people do with conversation with others whereas for me it was a very private process because yeah I wasn't allowed to talk with others we had absolutely no internet access or modern technology like faxes radios computers cell phones so I had no ability to research or find out things in the wider world so it was literally me in my bedroom with the bible mm-hmm. we were not allowed other christian literature we were forbidden from going into christian bookstores so the form of christian input that we had was called the ministry of the great men the great men are a, a bunch of leaders that the brethren have and so we had their ministry which went back for several decades and i was also trying to read that to try and understand all sorts of things like why didn't we eat with outsiders why couldn't i evangelize with my neighbor you know when i was on fire for this mm. wonderful god i'd encountered why was i forbidden from going and sharing that with others why couldn't i be a nurse or a teacher mm. yeah i had so many questions and so I'd, i was reading their ministry books, trying to find answers. And at first I thought I would find the answers because they, they, you know, we were the favoured position and there are intelligent people in there. I thought, well, surely the answers are here. But the more I read their ministry in tandem with Scripture, the more the disparities between the two mm-hmm. became so clearly evident. But, yeah, I, I eventually bought a lockable briefcase because, mm-hmm. again, I was so frightened of having my questioning being found out. And I, at this point, was starting to compile notebooks with my questions as they came up and answers next to them and that kind of thing. And I was terrified of that being discovered. Yeah, we had church every single night, so it was a busy life and four times on a Sunday. But after that and in between, wherever I could, I would be researching this stuff because I love learning and I love thinking. And yeah, it took several years, but by the time I was 20... I had an experience that for me was sort of the Saul on the Damascus Road type of thing and I all of a sudden saw saw through the brethren and realised that I was part of something that wasn't all it, you know, said it was. Mm. Yeah. Wow. What do you talk about that experience? Like what, what was that experience? Yeah, to? well, funnily enough, I went into Manor Bookstore. Right. Yeah, Christian Bookstore. So they were forbidden to us. But I went there because I 
I was looking for resources to teach my younger siblings about Jesus and to teach others around me about Jesus because I became aware that, yeah, in the Brethren there's no Sunday school material, no literature allowed at children, so no children's Bibles, absolutely nothing. The children are expected to silently participate in the adult meetings and to listen to them, and the family is supposed to do some Christian instruction at home, but very little, in my opinion, happens. And... I was really keen to teach my siblings about Jesus and to bring alive the stories and the parables and and all that kind of thing. And just, yeah, again, it's difficult to describe, but we had nothing like that. We had no Christian art that wasn't allowed. We weren't even allowed crosses in our homes. Wow. Um, We had to have photos of the leaders on the wall, but you were not allowed a cross. And so I was actually starting to draw booklets for my siblings, like trying to illustrate the parables, and um, I was writing little question and answers for them. I was obviously a complete nerd, but (laughs) I was finding this stuff exciting and cool, and I wanted to share it with them. And at this stage, the brethren had begun to do some sessions of Bible studies in their schools, in their private schools, but an old men would come and teach them, and some older women. And I asked if I could join in because I was wanting, wanting to teach this stuff. And it was really unusual for a younger person to be included in that. But I was allowed to go along on a few times. And anyway, one of them actually suggested to me sort of surreptitiously that oh, I might go and have a look in a manor bookstore to see if I found something for the children. Which, yeah, it wasn't allowed. So it was quite a radical idea, but mm. I jumped at it. Mm. So I went into a manor bookstore and I'll just never forget that feeling because I've, yeah, again, you know, I've come from an environment that's incredibly restrictive in terms of its access to the yeah. outside world, information access, and especially to Christian information and the huge world of diversity of mm. the Christian faith there is. But I walked into there and I, I couldn't believe it because all these things that I'd been imagining and envisioning were here. Like I'd been, you know, I had literally, I only had a photocopier and a typewriter. I'd been typewriting Q&A things for these children in their classes and my siblings and, you know, cutting them up with scissors and glue and photocopying them. And here there were these incredible resources for children with colours and pictures. You know, I'm not a very good drawer and I'd drawn these really ugly sheep (laughs) and things. And wow, here was amazing Christian art depicting what we see in scripture. You know, I could could go on and on. I'd begun to get really concerned there are brethren overseas who um, English is their second language. There are brethren in Germany and Argentina and Sweden and a few other places where English is not their primary language. But the brethren only allow the Bible in the John Nelson Darby version, which is archaic English. And I felt really sad that these people could only listen to church teaching in English. I had no idea that there were these Bibles and all these other translations. Mm. And so when I walked into the store, there, there, there was Bibles and Samoan and Tongan and Spanish, and I just thought, wow, this is exactly, you know, we know that the Bible wasn't written in English. Mm. It's already been translated, and it's quarter part of what Scripture is, is that it is translatable. Um, so anyway, I saw all these things, and I immediately, I just knew, I knew God is much bigger than anything that I have imagined him to be, and God is outside of the exclusive brethren. And that these people who are behind all of these resources, they know the same God that I've caught sight of in Scripture, a God who loves the whole world, a God who is colourful and imaginative and interesting and exciting, and a God who's relevant across so many spheres. And I thought, these people have seen the same God that I've seen, and I want to be with these people. Mm. Yeah, I didn't stay long. I was terrified of getting caught. 
I was just about in tears because I was so in shock at what I'd stumbled across. I ran out of there and I was too scared to buy anything. I ran out of there and I picked up free pamphlets from the side of the door and they were things advertising, you know, youth ministry camps and mm. took them to my car and, you know, sort of trembling, read, read them and took them home and put them in my loft, locked briefcase. Mm. But I, that was the moment I thought, that was like emperor's clothes moment. I realised I've been sold a lie. God is much mm. bigger than what I've been taught. I can only imagine, you know, both the sense of wonder of being opened up, but the terror well, you know, because now that makes you so different and so at odds with everybody around you. That's right. It, it did come with a terror and a horror because, look, in there, nearly every family has had somebody excommunicated. And I think everybody in the Brethren lives with this unspeakable trauma and horror of losing people they love who have somehow either got kicked out or who have chosen to leave because it's traumatic to leave but it's traumatic for people in there to lose people they love as well it is truly a kind mm. of death but it's worse mm. than death because there's no closure you know I had a grandfather who I'd never met and we never spoke of his name we were never allowed photos of him he'd disappeared I had a beloved aunt who was a very big presence in my life up until I was about eight I think and then she had just disappeared and, mm. and all her photos were removed nothing was ever spoken of her again we all we all knew that if you didn't fit the box, you could be disappeared. Wow. And so I knew that this would happen to me if I kept following this thread. And obviously that that did happen. Yeah, it did happen, yeah. I was absolutely horrified by the prospect of losing my family and everybody I loved. And I was absolutely split in two is the only way to describe it, by, mm. by absolutely torn in two by a desire to know and follow this God that I'd come to see and to um, I'm not a person who likes hiding anything I wanted to be able to live with integrity about what I believed to be true I hated the fact that I had a locked briefcase mm. it really disturbed me I like to be open and honest with everything I do and yet I knew that the second they found out I would be in deep trouble and I would you know eventually I would have to lose everybody and have to leave home so I was it was a decision I could not make, you know. I don't, almost anyone I've ever talked to who's an ex-member, nobody can make mm. that choice. It's it's like, it's um, with respect. Like a death. I don't, yeah, it is. I don't mean to um, minimise suicide, but it is actually, it it's felt a death, like a form yeah. of committing suicide because mm. you're weighing up this type of death that you're going to go yeah. through and you know that it's yeah. going to be like a death to everyone you love, that they're also going <sighs> to lose you. It's it's unspeakably traumatic and mm. it's untenable, isn't it? I mean, yeah. And and you're talking about being twenty, is that right? Yeah, that's right. You're yeah. having to face these huge uh, decisions at that age. Yeah, it is. It's it's it was absolutely terrifying. I describe it as being like you know jumping out of a plane into a black hole. Wow. You don't know anybody out there. You don't know how to conduct yourself. You don't know how to find accommodation. Or a job because you're also in the brethren. You must be employed by other brethren, but yeah, you don't know how to survive out there. At first, I looked at joining the army, and I contacted the army because I was trying to think through, and I was aware that I'm going to lose everything overnight. In the ideal world, I can go somewhere that can provide me with accommodation and income and food, and you know, it was it was like, okay, what can I do that can actually provide me wraparound support? Yeah. And I so I did look at the army. In the end, I said to God. 
I don't know what to do here. I can't bring myself to leave. And I also can't bring myself to be living a double life where I am sitting with these very real questions about the brethren. I can't imagine running away in the middle of the night like I've heard of some people doing. I just don't know what to do. And I I said to God, make it clear to me. And if you want me to discuss this with everyone before I leave and go through the process of having the elders visit me and all that, then you'll have to, you know, out me. Hmm. And he did because, yeah, I'd set up this private PO box and somebody wrote me a letter who it literally landed, they got the numbers wrong and it, and it um, landed up in a Brethren Elders P.O. box. Well, that's mm. the story they tell me. Someone suggested to me maybe they looked in your P.O. box, but I don't, think, I don't see how they could have done that. I think it genuinely landed in a Brethren Elders P.O. box because in that region quite a number of Brethren had P.O. boxes. And so I was outed. It was clear from the letter that I was you know, thinking of perhaps leaving and um, this elder contacted my parents and... You know, the brown stuff hit the fan. It was all out and it was a very, very traumatic period and I look back and I think I was probably having some kind of a breakdown because oh, I can remember, you know, a lot of staring at the roof, huge amount of crying, huge amount of discussions, like heated emotive discussions with family members and elders. It was very, very traumatic and then you're trying to pack up suitcases and pack up your whole life and you're aware that you're never coming back. So it's things like... Mm. Do I need to find in, you know, my childhood photos and photos of the family because I'm never going to see them again? And it's been nearly 15 years since I've left, and I have barely never seen any of them again. Wow. Wow. Mm. But to jump to a positive note, mm. so I contacted two aunts who'd been kicked out. I referred to one earlier. There was another one who'd left long before I'd ever met her. I contacted both of them, and both of them I'd been taught were evil and, you know, wicked outsiders, and so I wasn't anticipating on having anything to do with them, but I thought I'd do due diligence and connect with them. Well, one of them was a strong Christian, which I was shocked about, because we were taught that if anyone ever left, they didn't have a Christian faith. And she said, my son is a strong Christian, and he goes to Westgate Baptist Church. And she said, he's in the Air Force, and he goes to that church, and he's in Auckland, he could probably support you with leaving come and pick you up and he could put out a call to the church to see if anyone there could help you. Wow. And a lovely, wonderful couple called Stan and Pauline Pethybridge were going to Westgate Baptist and they um, heard of the need and put their hands up and said, hey, they'll have this young woman come and live with them for a few weeks Mm -hmm. while she finds her feet. And then also around that time, they felt that God said to them, this is not just a commitment for a few weeks, this is for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And Stan and Pauline have become parents to me, they're grandparents to my children. You know, I can't describe Mm. the gift that they gave me because Mm. they they gave me a home, they gave me a community, they gave me a soft nest to land in. Mm. The other option that I was looking at was moving into a home for foster girls, which I visited in later years, and it was a really rugged place, a really tough place, and it would have been very difficult for me to be there, and instead I had a loving pair of Christians who showed... Christian hospitality to a stranger and took me in and they they gave me a room they said put your things in the drawers I described to them how my family would be removing all the photographs of me from around the home and their response was to go and print a photograph of me and stick it on their fridge Wow. and yeah they've helped heal me immeasurably yeah for all the pain and trauma that I've experienced through the church not being what it's meant to be Stan and Pauline and Westgate Baptist Church have restored that 
you know, they've restored that and shown me this is how Christians are meant to be. This is what a church is meant to be. Yeah, it was a safe, supportive and healing community. Yeah. And so that's led you to start this new network, this Olive Leaf Network, to... In, in recent, it's just a few weeks old, right? Is that, is that, yeah, is that right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's seeking to support people like you who are coming out of these these spaces. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the the network and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I'd love to share about the Olive Leaf Network. So, yeah, for for many years in New Zealand, there's among ex brethren, there's been an informal network of people who have supported those who leave, but it's also yeah been ad hoc and of, oftentimes held up through maybe a lack of finances and a lack of one sort of cohesive place to, to connect. And, yeah, for a number of years people have said to me, what do you think about, you know, what do you think about setting up a network to help those who leave or even just a website and that type of thing? And I've always been really reluctant to knowing how much it would bring indictment from my family. Um, I've always held out hope for reconciliation with my family but anything like this, speaking to journalists, anything at all that could be seen as criticising or attacking them or the church, the, the Brethren Church, of course just brings you know antagonism from them and I was so reluctant to do that. And yet at the same time it's challenging because you think, well, actually even though I'm out, they're still managing to gag me and they're mm. still managing to mm-hmm. stop me from holding up my flag of truth that, you know, what I believe. And... Yeah, I had gone on and um, I'd spent many years, you know, building a new life. As as you do after you leave, you throw yourself into building a new life and, and a new community and that kind of thing. And I'd I'd achieved a level of healing and you know, and a new life that was going well for me. And but then about oh, I'm losing count of the years now, but possibly four or a bit over years now, my brother Braden suddenly got withdrawn from or excommunicated from the church, mm. and. With that came, as I reconnected with him, was this whole realisation that, oh my goodness, you know, I might have gone on and built a new life, but there are currently still people falling bloodied and bruised off the back of the bandwagon. And, yeah, his situation, yeah, was, was um, difficult and painful as well. He was There was a bit of publicity a while before he left because the leader of the Brethren had spoken specifically about him, saying that he was better to drink rat poison or find a way to kill himself or to drink arsenic than to have communication with outsiders. And we believe that was referring to Braden trying to reach out to contact me. When my brother was had some mental health challenges at this time, which the leader Bruce Hales knew about, and yet he very publicly in a in a large conference made these comments, which were then recorded and distributed to every single brethren household. Yeah, so in their minds, they do believe that contact with outsiders is akin to drinking poison. So that's like one example of, I guess, the extreme and us them mentality that they have in there. Yeah, so it was wonderful to reconnect with my brother Braden. But also, yeah, it made me see afresh that things are really, really hard for people when they leave. And then, um, yeah, hot on the heels of Braden leaving came a whole lot of other repercussions that were connected to how the brethren treat people. For example, my brother Braden was employed by our father in a family business, and my father became under huge pressure from brethren members to fire my brother and to have him get employment elsewhere, which is illegal. 
And Dad felt it would be incredibly unfair to him in the vulnerable state that he was in. And so Dad refused. And Dad, yeah, got in a lot of trouble. And he found himself shut up, which is the Brethren's first tier of discipline. It's extreme social isolation. So you're moved out of your house. If you are married, you're no longer allowed contact with your spouse. If children are in the home, they're taken away from you as well, or you're removed from them. You're forbidden to go out to church meetings anymore, which when you've had them every night of the week, it's incredibly isolating and psychologically crippling and then elders visit you periodically but you know dad wasn't visited for over six months at one point like it's the social isolation is just it's devastating to people and you know dad loved the brethren and he was committed to them he was more shocked than anyone to find himself kicked out you know he was still refusing to have anything to do with me at this stage because he was you know he he was questioning some practices and the leaders he wasn't questioning the brethren as a group but anyway, all of this made it become very clear to me that there are still people being negatively impacted by brethren practice and doctrine, mm. people who are becoming very vulnerable and harmed, and that there needs to be more support for them. Mm. So yeah, that was, that's been the last few years and it's just increasingly become clear to me and a whole bunch of people speaking into my life, I suppose, and, and saying, hey, we think that you've got a calling here. Also, I've been connecting with various others, like people who have left Centrepoint Commune in Auckland many years ago, people who have left Shinshonji, who have left Gloria Vale, and just realising that this is not just a problem in the Exclusive Brethren, that up and down New Zealand, as well as around the rest of the world, there are actually thousands and thousands of people who are being negatively impacted by religious groups. And often there's little recognition of it, Mm. even in, you know, it's very hard to find a therapist who specialises in religious trauma or spiritual abuse. Mm. But it feels like there's a real groundswell happening, I think, around the world and in New Zealand, recognition of the harm that's caused by these groups and a desire to try and um, mitigate that harm. Mm. Yeah. I've heard this term, high-demand religious groups. Could you explain, I'm assuming that the exclusive brethren fill into that category. Could you explain that term just in case yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, no, that's... it would be interesting as well for us to think about, I guess, more regular church contexts and whether there are any similarities, perhaps not to the same extreme, and what, what you've observed in there. So, yeah, I don't know. What's, what's a high-demand religious group? And how might you see, in your experience of church, since leaving there, are there similarities at all that you've experienced? Yeah, good question. So the term high-demand religious group is a sociological term. So there's been um, a bunch of academic research that's gone into religious groups, and they're also sometimes called totalitarian groups or high-cost groups or high-control groups, which, you know, we could have gone with those terms either. But the Olive Leaf Network is legally and constitutionally a charitable entity, and on our yeah on our founding documents it says we are there to support people who leave high-demand religious groups. Right. So that's the term that we've gone with. But in terms of a simple summary, it's obviously a religious group, so it's a group that has you know belief in one or more deities mm-hmm. and that those religious beliefs are a key part of what hold the group together. And then the high-demand part refers to the fact that high demands are placed on the lives of members. Now that's obviously could be subjective because the people who are part of those groups may or may not perceive them as high demand. Right. So it is a term that outsiders to a group tend to use. Sure. But yeah, and by high demand, it's really meaning that, yeah, that high demands are placed on many areas of the members' lives. And subsequently, it means that their high demands are placed on you if you leave or there's a high cost 
if you leave. So for, for the purposes of how we use the term in the Olive Leaf Network, we use five categories to help us to ask whether a group's high demand or not. We call it the high demand hand. You know, does the group have the high demand hand? And there's stuff about that on our website if anyone wants to look it up a bit further. But basically, it's are these key five areas of a person's life significantly impacted by the group? And those five areas are your relationships, so uh, a high number of your relationships highly impacted by the group. It's your resources. So is a, are a high number of your resources highly impacted by the group? So that might be your financial resources or it might be other things like your skills or other assets that you have. Is your education opportunities and your information access highly influenced by the group? Is your employment highly influenced or have high demands on it? by the group and lastly your lifestyle are there many aspects of a person's lifestyle that are also highly impacted by the group so just a quick recap on that it's relationships resources education employment and lifestyle so for the brethren yeah all five of those areas are heavily impacted by the group whereas obviously all groups exist on a spectrum Hmm. There might be other groups, for example, I understand the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they're high demand in many ways, but I understand that Jehovah's Witness people can be employed by anybody, by any outside organisation, whereas in the Brethren you have to be employed by other Brethren. So, you know, the Brethren, I call them a psychosocial commune. They actually operate a lot more like Gloria Vale than many other groups, but they don't live in a physical commune like Gloria Vale. But in terms of their psychosocial impact on members... It operates very much like a commune. Yeah, so I think Gloria Vale and the Exclusive Brethren are up there on the more extreme end and then um, other religious groups, you know, might be somewhere somewhere else on that spectrum. Mm. And there's a question mm. of um, where does Wellington South sit, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> Wellington South Baptist. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Or Sundays so, at four, Cathy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sunday is at four. Well, it's, it's really interesting because as you're talking about this, you know, listening to you, it's probably a lot more obvious for us to go, wow, look at those areas of control and and for us looking in. I think maybe what we don't often see is where it's more subtle in our everyday lives. And I'm wondering if we could maybe talk to that, talk to, to where are those areas that are more subtle that maybe we don't see, areas where there is control and and also maybe not the freedom to, to question because I think think from hearing your story, what really started to open things up is when you started to question what the what the norms were. Yeah, yeah, I do think that people who people who think and and write and research about high control groups, yeah, do often acknowledge that many areas of society or many groups have got characteristics that are high control, and that can be in individual or domestic relationships as well as on um, in businesses or political groups or all sorts of other groups in society and yeah I think it's really important to be aware of what those characteristics are because yeah sometimes they do come in really subtle forms and in fact a book I read early on after leaving was called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse and Mm. that was a fascinating book for me to read because I think yeah as, as religious people or Christians we can get into particular forms of subtle spiritual abuses where we're actually drawing on the name of God to threaten or intimidate or control people, yeah. uh, which is, I think, 
particularly pernicious because it's you know it's bringing people's salvation into question if they do or don't speak in tongues or yeah questions around what does submission look like or yeah I think Christians can be good at using subtle forms of control to influence and control people yeah so so one of your questions I think was what what might some of those be is that right Yes. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, on that note, on our website, we have got a wee survey that you can take to see if you are part of a high demand religious group. A lot of it does come back to control the group or a leader having undue control or influence over an individual. I mean, we are in a society that heavily values individual freedoms, which includes the freedom to leave religion if you should so choose, according to Article 9, I think, of the Human Human Rights Bill. But, yeah, for me, I think it does come back to things like, are questions allowed? Mm. Are you allowed to question what the leader or the elders of a group have done? And what's the response when you do? Are they open to receiving questions or even criticism? Or is there defensiveness in phrases like, touch not the Lord's anointed? Mm. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, another red flag is if there's really strong in versus out, you know, us versus them type of mentality, which Mm -hmm. as Christians, obviously we do believe that we do have, you know, we are a peculiar people, Scripture tells us. I'm not saying that we have no boundaries at all. Hmm. We do, but it's sort of that posture of what is your posture towards outsiders and is there a particular defensiveness or fear that's fostered? Mm -hmm. Restricting access to... Outside information is a big red flag, like if you're only being encouraged to read literature produced by that group or by that leader, that's that's a that's a big red red flag. Yeah. I don't know, you could probably take those five things again and go, yeah, uh, is there a high level of influence or control over relationships, resources, lifestyle, employment and education? Yeah, and, and to be concerned if if it does seem like the group is trying to control a bunch of those areas. So in terms of the changes ahead, are we going to see more of these high-demand groups? Yeah, I think I think we would. I've actually got a book in my hand here um, called Culture, which was produced at the end of last year by um, Anka Richter, a um, German-born Kiwi journalist. And on page four in the introduction, she writes... From social media echo chambers to sports clubs, we, being human beings, we are tribal beings, dependent on connection through a shared purpose. But in an increasingly secular society, traditional religion has lost its place. In its stead has popped up the self-help movement, there to meet and monetize a need that is as old as humankind itself, to understand who we are and to make sense of this complicated world. For some, it might be finding their soul on a spiritual path. Others, it's a new technique from an inspirational coach that might help them be the best in their job. But whatever the pursuit, it comes with its own subculture. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that she said as dominant as a dominant or traditional religion loses that place, mm. that it doesn't displace the innate human need for belonging and for a community and for purpose, but that people will just look for that elsewhere. And so it's a right field for a myriad of other groups and gurus to be popping up. And so I do think we will see more and more people involved with groups that can, even if they start out with wonderful ideals, can become abusive. You know, so as we're talking, it's really making me think about how important it is 
that our places are safe places for people to belong and not to lose that sense of if I question, I'm going to lose belonging. So what do we do? How do we, how do we create safe spaces? Yeah, that's such a good question, Kathy. Um, I do think that safe church communities are so needed up and down New Zealand for because um, there are so many people up and down New Zealand who have been um, really badly wounded by religious groups and church communities, which is, um, you know, it's it's really embarrassing and, and painful, but we mm. need to be honest about that fact, mm, mm. that people have hurt each other and continue to hurt each other in the name of God. Um, mm. And it is, you know, it's our job to be at work doing our best to repair that and to, and to stop further harm. I think on an individual level, it's, you know, working to be a safe person yourself, um, not having you know, extreme reactions or practices if somebody believes differently to you and as they figure out who God is and how God wants them to live. I think of somebody recently contacted me through the Olive Leaf Network and they had just got chatting with someone on a plane who they discovered was a vulnerable and distressed member of a high-demand religious group. And this person um, exchanged phone numbers with them and has kept in sort of gentle, non-invasive friendship with this person who isn't yet ready to leave their group but just desperately needed a a kind and safe listening ear and a friend. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it's, I think, about us reaching out to our neighbour or the person in the plane seat next to us or at the, you know, kindy drop-off. So being aware that, yeah, there could be people around you or a next-door neighbour or someone through your work who is part of a group like that and um, letting them know that you're a safe person for their questions to be expressed um, and then, yeah, at a church level, I think, especially I suppose I'm thinking of church leaders, it's very, very important that I think we explicitly invite and acknowledge the place for questions and mm. criticism of what we're doing, that we learn how to have healthy and open discussion and debate about how God wants us to live. It's also about safeguarding vulnerable people and children and making sure that we are, have got pathways for reporting abuse should it be happening I think being listening carefully to people because sometimes it's not things you think of like I've met people who find the word father god very triggering Mm. because of abuses in their past or people who find being asked for money triggering so perhaps it's about getting to know one another hearing one another's wounds and um, being sensitive to each other as as we walk together yeah there are two scriptures that have come to mind often as I've thought about the olive leaf network And just to be clear, the Olive Leaf Network, even though it comes from the biblical imagery of the dove bringing a leaf back to Noah, we are not doing what we're doing to support only Christians. Mm. In fact, most people who leave high-demand religious groups want nothing at all to do with religion. I don't see it as my role at all to bring people in in a forceful way to Christ. I'm very happy and open that I myself am a Christian and that I have found a relationship with Jesus to be a positive and beneficial thing in my life. But I think it's incredibly important that, as Scripture says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's incredibly important for people to make their own decision about what's beneficial for them. And so, um, yeah, we've got atheists and agnostics and all sorts of people on our team. And it's very important for me that we're not forcing religion on anybody, Mm. but that that's a choice that they're free to make. But for me personally, there are two scriptures that I've come back to several times, and I suppose I'd love to leave these scriptures with our listeners if they're Christian themselves, which is, as Lazarus was called out from the tomb, I noticed in that text that 
Jesus actually says, you know, Jesus did the calling out, but then he said to the people around Lazarus, his family and, and people who loved him, unwrap him, <laughs> untie the bandages from him and set him free. And I love that image of how Jesus called him out and called him awake, but then Jesus invited the others around him to participate in setting him free and unbinding him from these things that were bringing him death, you know, and that smelt of the tomb. And I think that that's what God's calling all of us to do, to um, partner with him in unwrapping things from people that, you know, are not life-giving. And the second one is the good old Samaritans, um, the parable of the good Samaritan, because, man, it's just it's just so timeless and so beautiful that the Olive Leaf Network, you know, I hope that, yeah, we're going to be there for the vulnerable people who find themselves unexpectedly beaten up on the side of the road and that we can put them on our horse, take them to the inn, pour oil into their wounds and um, get them on their way. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful image. Yeah. 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 So, Lindy, as we're wrapping up, people might want to support this kind of work that you're doing. Is there any way that, that we can be involved a little more than just perhaps trying to be safe people and, and faith communities? Yeah, we would absolutely love to hear from anybody who you know feels like they could be on board with our co-papa. So there are a few different ways. If you hop onto our website, you can have a look around. And also there's a support us tab where we encourage people to, if they would like to volunteer with us in a more formal way, we've got a few different tiers or ways that people can get involved. So you can contact us to ask more about that. We are currently running a Give a Little Appeal because we do have significant startup costs. Ironically, it costs a bit to set up a charity. Um, (laughs) And thirdly, I think helping to spread yeah, spread awareness, share this podcast. We've actually got three lovely books here that I've said to Stephen and Kathy. We'd love to give one away if you share this podcast. We can pop you into a draw to win three books. They're all about high-demand religious groups. We can pop a photo of them up so people can check them out and you yep. can choose what one you like. But yeah, spreading awareness, making friends with your neighbours in case they're from a high-demand religious group and they want to want to get to know a friend. Awesome. Yeah. You've mentioned the website. What's the, what's the web address? Web address is oliveleaf.network and um, you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn by typing in Olive Leaf Network, I believe. Yeah. And the Give a Little is on those Facebook pages or the website? Yeah, it is. Sort of yeah. Yeah, or brilliant. if you could head over to the Give a Little website itself and pop Olive Leaf Network into the search function, it should come up. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving me a place to share. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's such an important topic, um, obviously, with uh, particularly for the, the people who are coming out of high-demand religious groups, but also for us to be aware of as, as church mm. communities. You know, what, how are we maybe contributing to some of those flags that you've, you've highlighted for us? So really important as we consider um, yeah. the changes ahead for the church. So thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Changes Ahead podcast. If that resonated with you, or you've got thoughts about the changes ahead for the church, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch on Instagram or Facebook at Changes Aheadcast, or email us at the Changes Ahead podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>